This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 236, and we are recording on June 16th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. Welcome. Welcome to our Pride show. Yes, it's our Pride show. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. It's very heavy on the lesbians, which was an accident, <laughs> but these are the questions that we had, so that's right, what we're yeah. going with. <laughs> Instead of just like randomly picking queer books that we wanted to talk about, which we've definitely done before, we actually mm-hmm. did go through and pull out all of the queer-focused questions, so. Yeah. These are the questions. They are. Thank you so much for sending them in. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So when we're not doing themes, how the show usually works is that y'all send in questions either via email, getbookedepicride.com, or through the form that's at the bottom of the show notes for every episode of the show on our site on Book Riot. And we do our best to find you your next great read. You can ask about anything and everything from how to find comps for a favorite book that left a hole in your heart to what your book club should read to what you should get for a friend or family member or whatever. We will do our best to find you a next great read. If you have a time-sensitive question, please do put time-sensitive, all caps, either in the subject line of the email or the very first line of the form and the date that you're hoping to hear back by. And if we're not going to get to it on air, we might shoot you an email, so keep an eye out for those. We do have some feedback, appropriately enough, actually. From a previous show, Elizabeth says, for the healthcare worker looking for fluffy romances with strong sibling relationships, red, white, and royal blue. I know it gets recommended all the time, but I really do think it's perfect for the request. Well, we didn't do it, so. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't me. It wasn't me, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Amanda has used that one up so many times now. (laughs) I'm not sorry. All right, so we are going to read our first question and do a sponsor and then get into our picks for the day. So our first question is from Sam, who says, I am looking for a lighthearted queer romance story with mermaids. It can be mermaid slash mermaid or human slash mermaid. Both are fine. I'd prefer a women loving women romance, but anything queer would be great. All right, so let us take a moment for a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. 
But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. And now, Amanda, what is your queer mermaid pick for Sam? This took some digging, let me tell you. But I ended up buying and reading the book that I wanted to pick for it and loved it. So that was great. That was like a nice bonus. I I picked The Seafarer's Kiss by Julia Ember, which is the first book in right now. I think it's just two. I think it's a duology. And this is a read telling this is complicated it's a retelling (laughs) of the little mermaid from the perspective of ursula but gay and also the norse gods are there like loki thor odin Mm. yeah it's like what (laughs) like it's a mashup of so many well two things really the norse god thing and the little mermaid thing that i was like i don't think those two things are gonna go together but they did (laughs) and it's great so the main character's name is ursula she's a mermaid and in their her like mermaid society the value of the women is, or the girls really, is very heavily determined by how fertile they are. And every year they have this ceremony to figure out how fertile they are. And Ursula is like not into it. She's extremely not into it. She does not care. She, the, the end game of that is that you get you know, paired up with some dude and then you get to go have a bunch of mermaid babies and she just hashtag not interested. Very much wants to go off and have her own adventures. But her society is decaying because they are from the south but they have had to move because of wars and things to like the very north 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 sea um like she's friends with belugas kind of a thing mm-hmm. and lots of they live in a glacier like that's what's happening and their pop it's getting harder and harder for their population to reproduce and so there's just all this pressure to make babies and she does not want to do it she wants to leave and go have adventures and like go explore the south and you know befriend more whale varieties i don't know And so she's a bit of an outcast for these reasons. She doesn't do all the things that the girls are supposed to do to ensure their fertility. She's just not doing them. And she also tends to collect human stuff, which is, you know, very Little Mermaid-ish, which has made her even more of an outcast. But then one day, she finds a shield maiden human named Ragna, who is shipwrecked on the glacier. And she, like, brings her food and is very 
interested in her and like wants to it speaks her language and wants to bring her some of her human stuff that she's found on the seafloor to like get an explanation for what these things are. Her neat stuff. Look at huh? this stuff. Isn't it neat? Sorry, I can't not. Oh, do that. yes. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Wouldn't you say my collection's complete? But I can't say that because I don't know what this thing does. Like, what is it? <laughs> it's a snurfle or whatever the seagull calls it. So she like brings all of her stuff, like a like a cat who's killed a lizard, like brings all her stuff to Ragna, who is stuck on this glacier trying not to die. She's like, but what is this? But what is this? You know? And so they befriend each other. They develop feelings for each other. And she gets caught by another, by a merman. And so he blackmails her into coming with him and like becoming his mate and all of this kind of stuff is just terrible and so or he's going to kill Ragna that's the that's the blackmail portion so she in order to get out of this pickle because she does not want Ragna to die because she loves her but she also does not want to get pregnant and have babies with this guy who she's now like super mad at understandably so she calls on Loki the trickster for assistance makes the deal with him that goes terribly wrong uh, and then has to figure out how to get herself out of this pickle that she's gotten herself into and also how to get back to Ragna, her one true love who has legs. It's all very complicated. And I loved it so much. It's so strange. It's so strange. It's also like real steamy, which I don't know. Like I'm not species stuff, not usually my thing, but she has legs when it matters. So like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) it is amazing. I love it so much. And the second book is from Ragna's point of view. I will say it's a little bit violent. Like a lot of people die. There's a lot of shipwrecks. um, And Ragna is a shield maiden. Like she's a warrior. So there's a lot of punch kicking, you know. And in the second one, it's from her perspective after the events of the first. So yeah, weird mashup of like mythology and and uh, folktales. And I just really liked it. So that's The Seafarer's Kiss by Julia Ember. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mine is actually a graphic novel, an all-ages graphic novel called Aquicorn Cove by Katie O'Neill, who is the amazing illustrator behind the Tea Dragon Society, which, speaking of adorable queer graphic novels, are just, it's just so freaking cute. And this one is sea-focused, so I thought it might work for you. It is about, well, there's like two sort of main characters. There's Lana, a young girl, who is visiting her Auntie May on a little island, which is where they actually used to live. But um, Lana and her father had to move to the city. Lana lost her mom, and she's still really sad about it. But there was this huge storm, a big disaster, and so Lana and her father come back to help the village rebuild. And, you know, like, it was such a big storm that not only are structures damaged, but, like, there are animals damaged. And Lana finds, like, a little seahorse friend who needs help and, you know, helps the seahorse. And in the meantime, Auntie May goes underwater to where the aquacorn, like, aqua, unicorn, we're all on the same page here, where the aquacorns live. And Auntie May and their leader, Aura, get, like, their own female-female friendship slash relationship. Really beautiful. And it's also all about the importance of, you know, conservation and aquatic life and, you know, how we can respect nature and work with it. And I just love the art on this. It's so beautiful. And I really love the leader, Ara, who is in the relationship with Auntie May. She's like, she's kind of like seafoam green and she's got a horn, but also earrings. And like, I don't know, it's really interesting and fun. And Katie O'Neill is just like her wheelhouse is super sweet, 
queer stories. And so I just love all of them. Uh, So again, that's Aquacorn Cove by Katie O'Neill. All right. Our next question is from Chloe, who says, I'm looking for some books for my 11-year-old niece. She is confused about her sexuality and gender right now and doesn't live in a very forgiving household. She loves fantasy novels in real-life situations as well. She loves comics and manga. I'm looking for something that could be reassuring for her and make sure she knows she is normal. Okie dokie. I picked Zenobia July for this, which is by Lisa Bunker, and it is a middle-grade book about, well, can you guess? It's about Zenobia July. Hence the title, who is, I think she's 11 or no, maybe she's 12. I think she's a 12-year-old girl who has recently moved to Maine. She is from Arizona where she was living with her father. Her father has died and her mother died when she was younger. So she is orphaned and she's now living with her aunt and her aunt's wife in Maine. Zenobia is a trans girl who is dealing with so much at once, right? Like she's lost her her parent. Her relationship with her father was difficult. As you say about your niece, Zenobia did not live in a very forgiving household. Her father was kind of like a prepper and like a religious fundamentalist. So he made life for Zenobia pretty difficult. But still, it's the only parent she's like known and he is gone now. So she's dealing with that kind of grief. All the normal adolescent stuff, you know, and now she's starting a new school, new guardians and parental figures. And her her aunts are like kind of hippies and she does not know what to do with them. Like she one of them literally says right on to like the as the answer. She just just doesn't know or like groovy, you know, like what? What language are you speaking? And so Zenobia doesn't know what to do with that. But so she's starting this new school. She finds pretty quickly a group of really awesome and diverse friends. She befriends a hijabi girl who like wants to be a senator. She befriends this like really quiet kid who, as far as I can remember, his most prominent character feature is that he has an undercut that's blue <laughs> that his parents are like weirded out by. She has a non-binary friend, just a, a really great and diverse cast of friends who are very like loving and the just you know like if you overhear i don't know if middle schoolers would be gen z do they have a new generation yet i don't know like anyone under 25 to me is they're all the same not the same but like the same lump of gen z but the way that these kids talk to each other it's just so like loving and accepting and it's just it's very heartwarming and zenobia is a master hacker Love it so much. And so somebody hacks the school website and starts posting like far right memes on the school website. And Zenobia decides that she's going to figure out who it is using her like truly impressive hacker skills. So the book is both, you know, like a character story about Zenobia and her kind of coming of age and figuring out who she is in this new school. um, And like, do I want to be like kind of punk rock? Do I want to be you know, how kids are trying to figure out, like, not necessarily what clique they want to fit into, but trying on different personas and fashion icons and stuff like that. So it's all of that. But it's also, like, just this mystery about this really intelligent and talented girl solving this kind of, like, not low stakes, but not super, super high stakes mystery because she's 12. So high stakes mysteries would be a little weird. (laughs) And I, like, just loved it so much because she is The author's not ignoring any of the obstacles that a trans girl who was 12 and has moved to a new town would face. She's not ignoring any of those. But it's also very much just about a smart girl solving a problem, you know, and like leaning into her talents and figuring out her like worth and her value and where she like the kind of person she wants to be when she grows up, like career wise and all that kind of stuff that you're thinking about when you're 12, which I think is important to give to your niece for that reason, like giving 
a kid who is questioning her identity, a book about a girl who is also questioning her identity, but not in the same ways, has figured out a lot of that stuff and is kind of moving on to deal with kind of, you know, the things that adolescents are dealing with as far as what I want to be when I grow up and like, do I do I love my guardians or do I hate them? It depends on the moment, you know, that kind of just all of those things, all of those things that normal teenager preteens and teenagers have to deal with is all in this book. And it's just a real cute little mystery. So that's Zenobia July by Lisa Bunker. That sounds amazing. That's so great. That's so great. I wanted to recommend Lumberjanes because comics and manga and fantastical situations, but also real life situations and also all of the representations. Like it just feels like if you haven't already given this to your niece, this is right in her wheelhouse. The first volume is called Up All Night and is by Noelle Stevenson, Grace Ellis, Shannon Waters and Brooke Allen. And it's just got all kinds of queer and trans and gender nonconforming and diversity representation all over the place, just all over the place. Um, And what it is, is a bunch of, you know, children, mostly girls, who go to a camp where they are like outdoors camp, like their cabins, you know, and they have counselors who are in the cabins with them. And they're all preteens. And some of them are like very silly and some of them are very proper and some of them are very girly and some of them are not. And they all, you know, have these beautiful friendships with each other. And they also have these magical adventures. There are mysterious beings in the forests. And so they have to go on quests and friendship like saves the day, all of these different times. And they struggle with all kinds of things, you know, feelings of self-worth and being on the outs or, you know, I don't know. Just like all of those preteen feelings are there on the page. Really beautifully illustrated. And like, but it's all totally normal. Like you were saying, you just want to show her that she's normal. Like everything is treated with acceptance and love. And it is just so heartwarming. So again, the first volume in the Lumberjane series is Up All Night. And yeah, highly recommend the whole thing. Okay, the next question is from Kathleen, who says, I'm looking for a book to fulfill the 2020 Read Harder task to read a romance novel starring a single parent. I have a hard time getting into straight romance novels, but I enjoy LGBTQ romance novels, particularly women who love women romance. Any suggestions for WLW or other LGBTQ plus identities romance novels featuring a single parent would be much appreciated as I have not had any success in finding one myself. This was hard. Hard too. There's not that many female, female, single parent romances out there. Yeah. But we did find some. We did. <laughs> Amanda, why don't you go first? Uh, it looks like we went to the same well for, yeah. <laughs> for this. So my pick is Courting the Countess by Jenny Frame, which is the first book in the Axtell series. And I got this recommendation from the Lesbury, which is the same place that Jen got hers. And the Lesbury is a blog by Danica Ellis, who is a book contributing editor, who has been blogging about lesbian lit and queer lit for like a decade. So if you want to go check out the Lesbury, please do that. She's also got a YouTube channel. Both are great resources. So. Courting the Countess is amazing. And I was so confused when I first started reading it because I thought just based on the cover and the title and like the first two pages that I was reading something set in like the Downton Abbey kind of like pre-World War One time period. Nay, nay, my friend. Then somebody mentioned a cell phone. And I was like, <laughs> wait, what? So it's about Harry Knight, Harry short for Henrietta, who is a professor of archaeology at Oxford. 
whose father has just died and made her the Countess of Axdale. So she has gone upon her father's death. Or no, she's at Cambridge. Sorry. She has left Cambridge and has gone to Axdale Hall in order to like renovate it and bring it back to its former glory as she promised her grandfather that she would do when she inherited her title. And then once she's she's taken a year off to do this. And once she has renovated the hall and turned it into whatever, like a tour, like a museum or whatever it's going to be, she's going to go back to Cambridge. And she is very averse to relationships. Her parents had a super strange and difficult relationship. Her mother basically fled the marriage and went to Monaco to like escape her husband and left Harry there to be raised by this like awful man. So she, you know, no love lost between her and her parents. And so Harry has turned into this kind of like she's a womanizer. She's very like use them and lose them, does not stick around. You cannot spend the night. I'm not making you eggs. Get out. You know, that kind of thing. And then Annie is her new housekeeper. And I look, I love me some like weird power stuff in a romance novel. And the employer employee thing is so interesting in this because and they do examine it. Like, I think it's important that that dynamic is examined when it happens in a book and they do talk about it. So Annie is hired to be a housekeeper and she is very well recommended. Like the agency, she's their top you know, housekeeper, she's used to dealing with these giant roaming houses that are like falling apart. She brings them back into order. So she moves in and she has a young daughter who's I think nine or 10, Riley, who stays with her and like travels with her as she goes to these houses and stays for five, six months, helps fix them up and then leaves. Um, She's a great mother. Her relationship with Riley is amazing. And Riley, it turns out, is like obsessed with Roman history. So going to live in the house of an ar- a famous archaeology professor is like Riley's dream. But Harry's not having it. Harry does not like children. And when this like beautiful woman shows up, she's like, all right. And then she realizes she has a kid and she's like, no, no, get out. And so she tries to get them to leave, but there's no one else available. So they're stuck together. And so the whole story is like Annie, who is all sweetness and like, romantic and just want someone to be with forever running up against harry who is like this butch like no nonsense not interested in love will not get into relationship does not want to be your friend and annie is just like she handles her so well it's very much that like alpha that you know that trope of like the alpha character and then the 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 um not beta but i mean in tradition in like hetero romances like traditional hetero romance you know it's just like a very alpha kind of dude and then this woman who comes in and is like whatever like i don't take anything you say seriously i'm just gonna love you till you love me back and that is exactly what's happening here like uh harry is so gruff and like straight up rude to annie often and annie is just like whatever i'm gonna bring you flowers every day with your lunch <laughs> i'm gonna make the tea that you like i'm gonna quietly court you hence the title courting the countess in a way that doesn't spook you until you love me because I'm amazing and your love is inevitable in my life. And it's just (laughs) great. I love it. I love that whole trope. I love that trope played out in a lesbian romance. That's amazing. So that's Courting the Countess by Jenny Frame. All right. I am still waiting for my library hold to come in on this. So, but again, again, I did go to the Lesbury because it is an amazing resource and it sounds amazing. It's A Fairy Tale of Possibilities by Kiki Archer, which is a contemporary about a British wedding planner named Lauren who has been, you know, making her bride's dreams come true for a while now. But she herself has been pining over her 
theoretically straight best friend Rachel since they were at university together. They've been friends for 11 years. And Lauren is just kind of like drifting from girlfriend to girlfriend while, you know, pining over her best friend. And Rachel married the guy she met at university, had a son, became a stay-at-home mom. And her husband died two years ago at the start of the book. And Rachel is deciding like, okay, I'm ready to get out back out there. And like, I think I might actually be interested in women at this point in my life. So maybe I'm going to do that. And so Lauren, like this is suddenly the opportunity that Lauren has been waiting for. But it's not that simple because they have been friends for so long. Rachel's son, Parker, and Lauren have their own special relationship. And Lauren, you know, doesn't want to mess up. They're of this amazing, you know, touchstone friendship. But also, like, she has had these feelings for Rachel for forever. And so it would be, you know, it, like, does make any sense not to act on them, but how do you make it work? And based on all the reviews that I've read, they make it work. It sounds like there's a lot of fun stuff in here as well. Apparently, there's, like, a very ridiculous kind of wacky assistant. Um, the clients, you know, I can just imagine all of the fun, like, bridezilla moments that there probably <laughs> are in here. And, uh, yeah, so it sounds really, really fun. And I think it's a really interesting premise. And I do love a single parent romance and I don't see all that many that are queer. So I'm excited to poke around more in this subgenre. So thank you for sending us down this rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. um, so again, that's A Fairy Tale of Possibilities by Kiki Archer. All right. Our next question is from Michelle, who has two requests. The first one is, in the past few years, I have fallen back in love <laughs> with romance novels. While I do enjoy contemporary, I absolutely love the historicals of Sarah McLean and Courtney Milan. Courtney Milan's The Suffragette Scandal made me realize I'd like to read some historical lesbian romance. I've been able to find plenty of contemporary, but I'm struggling to find any historicals other than Sarah Waters, who I like but don't love. I'm also not particularly interested in erotica. The second request is I would love to read some books set in New Orleans or Savannah. So for this one, we're, for the second request, we're going to refer you to our last, not the last show, but the show before that. So not the anti-racism reading show, but the show before that where we answered another question about Savannah. So we're sending into that one. But we are going to answer your historical lesbian romance question now. Okay, I picked The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite, which is the first book in the Feminine Pursuits series. And this is a Regency romance that I have been obsessed with <laughs> since I read it. And I actually had to go check and make sure that I hadn't talked about it too much this year. And I haven't. So I still still have a whatever, like card to play. I don't know what metaphor I was going for there. <laughs> so this is about Lucy, who is a brilliant astronomer. I always get astronomer and astrologer mixed up. I know the difference, but the terms, I don't know, I'm short circuits my brain. So she's a, a really smart astronomer. Her father was also an astronomer and like trained her in how to do all that math and all of the science and all of that. Um, her father has recently died. And so she is kind of, you know, trying to figure out what she wants to do with herself. Her brother wants to sell all of her father's equipment and does not think that Lucy has a future as an astronomer. So that's the situation that she's in. Uh, and then Lucy gets a letter from the Countess of Moth, which sub point is the most awesome title that could possibly mm -hmm. exist the countess of moth i'm gonna be the countess of moth i don't even know is that real is that a real title i don't know i don't care um so she gets a letter from the countess of moth who is looking it's it's to her father but obviously her father has died looking for someone to help her translate a french astronomy text so lucy travels to the countess of moth's home without responding to the letter and is like hi my father's dead nbd but like i could do this for you because i really need a job or something to do with myself and the countess of moth whose name is Catherine, 
accepts her help. And so Catherine herself has recently become a widow. Her late husband was also a scientist, but he was awful. And so she's kind of looking forward to, you know, not having to deal with men anymore and kind of doing whatever she wants. She's an amazing artist. She's a um, fashion designer and embroiderer, embroidery artist. I don't know if embroiderer is a word. Textile artist needlework person i don't know uh don't at me i'll figure it out and i'll put in the show notes what the right term is fabric arts she does yes. fabric, fabric arts. arts thank you thank you thank you um and so she is very much thinking like i'm gonna give this translation to someone to deal with i won't have to involve myself in this project anymore and i can do what i want but then lucy shows up and she's like oh maybe i do want to involve myself in this project actually because she's real cute and so they would start working together to get this work translated. You know, and that's what they do all day. They spend their days translating this really complicated French astronomical text, and they spend their nights talking to each other and, like, getting real close. And then they have to face, like, a series of obstacles that brings them closer and closer together. Mostly those obstacles are dudes who are in charge of the, like, London astronomers group that's putting out this text and is, like, not having a woman do the translation like there's just a lot of obstacles that get thrown in their way that are done by men and along the way they fall for each other one of my favorite parts of this book is the fact that Catherine's talents as a fabric artist thank you jen Mm. are very undervalued by her like she does not call herself an artist she thinks that her work is not like societally important she thinks it's just like a hobby or whatever and lucy spends so much of this book telling her that she is an artist, that her work belongs in museums, that the only reason that working with fabric and doing things that are traditionally like, quote unquote, feminine aren't in museums is because of sexism. And it's just this like amazing through line. It's almost like a subplot, I guess, or point of their relationship that I appreciated so much because that's not really discussed enough. I don't think like not in romance novels, certainly I've never seen it, but even in the general, you know, community of the world, the society, culture, whatever. So that's The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite. I have to just say that I read the sequel that comes out later this year (laughs) called The Karen Feeding of Waspish Widows, and it's fantastic. (laughs) It's so great. Okay. My pick for this question actually also works for the previous question about single parent female female romance. It's a little light mischief by Kat Sebastian. It is historical and it is about a lady's maid named Molly, who is the single parent. She comes from oh, and this is a novella. It's very short. It's like only like 144 pages in ebook, just FYI. But so she's a lady's maid. She comes from a background where she, you know, was born into poverty and had to, you know, pull herself up by hook and crook. So she's done something she's not proud of, including like a lot of thieving. Uh, but she has been, you know, trying to put that behind her and move forward. She's making a good living. She likes the lady that she's working for now. So she's, you know, not doing that kind of thing anymore. And Alice is the companion to this lady that they're both working for, whose name has now completely escaped me. I apologize. But she's pretty great, too, actually. Lady Raxhall. That's her name. And uh, so and she has decided that she's like, basically, this lady has decided she's bored. And also, Alice has been kicked out of her home by her terrible, abusive, alcoholic father. Um, And so Lady Raxhall is like, you will come and be my companion and just like hang out with me. 
But Alice is like, I used to run my terrible father's household, but still I was in charge. Like I'm used to cleaning because we didn't have any money. So like I did all the stuff around the house and I don't, God, you just want me to sit here in the corner and sort of do nothing? Like, I don't know how to do that. Um, and so she gets kind of obsessed with Molly, the lady's maid. She's like, what's, what's her story? What's her deal? And one night she sees Molly, you know, quote unquote, sneaking out. Molly's actually not sneaking out. She has permission. But Alice doesn't know that. And she follows her. Like you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like totally acknowledged to be not a good thing. <laughs> you should not do that. But so she follows her and discovers that Molly is a single mom. Like she's putting her daughter up in this lodgings and, you know, working to earn enough money to keep her. And, you know, they start to bond and also have like a very real attraction to each other. And then they go to this house party at like some some other lord or lady's house and the terrible man who is the reason that Alice was kicked out of her own home is there and so the two of them hatch some revenge and make some thieving happen and it is so satisfying <laughs> it's so satisfying this is the point at which I should give a tr trigger warning for indecent exposure and attempted sexual assault sorry I didn't do that sooner it's not really on the page, but it is discussed. And same with the father. He is like, actions are discussed, but not so much on the page. And he's terrible. And it is so satisfying to see these two, like, find each other and figure out, you know, how to win the day and make everything happen. And I love there's some friendships with characters because this is part of the Turner series. So if you've read the other books in the series, you'll recognize some of the supporting characters who have little cameos. But even though it's very short, it feels very complete. And I just loved these two. Like, Alice is so prickly and Molly is so matter of fact and just sort of having none of anybody's nonsense. It's really delightful. So again, that's A Little Light Mischief by Cat Sebastian. And it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a, a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out the Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone. But, you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them. But he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. 
To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, our next question is from TL, who says, I just read My Real Children by Joe Walton and fell in love with the romance between the two female characters, Pat and B. I've never explored LGBTQIA plus romance before and was hoping you had some suggestions for more lesbian romance books with the same tone. Not tragic, but lighthearted, cute and cozy, with the emphasis on the relationship rather than the bedroom. And actually, are there any cozy mysteries featuring lesbian MCs? I'm so here for that if there is. Amanda, I'm going to let you talk some. <laughs> okay. I picked Something to Talk About by Meryl Wilsner, which is a pretty new release. It came out in May. And this is a lesbian romance that is not tragic, but it's lighthearted. It's very cute. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it cozy, but it is more like the steaminess level is a bit lower, I think, than a lot of the other romances that I tend to recommend and read. So the emphasis being on the relationship rather than the bedroom, part of your question, I think this one will really fulfill it. So this takes place in Hollywood, which I loved. I've not read a lot of romances set in Hollywood, but it was really great. And focuses on Joe, who is this like very powerful Hollywood writer. She's Asian American. I got the impression that she was supposed to be based on Shonda Rhimes a little bit, like took Hollywood by storm, is now writing all of these big blockbusters and just a complete powerful in charge Marge kind of a person. And she's in her um, 40s. And her assistant's name is Emma. She invites Emma to walk the carpet with her at some award show because she wants somebody like there to buffer her. Joe has been given the job of writing a big movie script. It's like a James Bond kind of character, somewhat like an action, very, very masculine dude movie series that has been a long and beloved franchise that it's not James Bond, but it's like that that she is now in charge of. And people keep asking her questions about it. Like, are you the person to write it? Nobody thinks she's the person to write it because she's a woman and she is Asian and like, it's going to be terrible, blah, blah, blah. And she just doesn't want to talk about it. So she takes Emma as her like, quote unquote, date, but not date, like buffer, like keep people away from me on this red carpet. I don't want to talk to reporters. But they get some of the pictures that come out of their red carpet walk, make it look like they're together. And so these rumors start swirling that Emma and Joe are sleeping together Joe does not love it because Joe does not comment on her um, love life and never has. She's a lesbian, but she's not out publicly and she does not like just has never talked about it and she doesn't want to talk about it. So that's what she decides to do. And Emma goes along with it. But Emma's more upset because Emma's very young. Like Joe, I said, is in her 40s. Emma is in her 20s. And Emma feels like she's going to get a reputation for only succeeding because she's sleeping with her bosses. And like, that's not the kind of reputation that she wants to have. But she trusts Joe. And since Joe says, let's not comment on it, that's what they decide to do. They decide to not comment on it. So the gossip starts to spread. It starts affecting different areas of their lives. Emma's family like teases her mercilessly about her, you know, quote unquote, girlfriend. And Joe starts being questioned by network executives about like whether her relationship is going to negatively influence the show, even though there's no proof of that. And they figure out that there's like some kind of leak in their close circle who is giving information that makes it look like they're together when they're not like 
you know, uh, when they're they're coming home from meetings late at night and they're dropping each other off at somebody's apartment. Somehow there are always cameras there. Like, how is that possible? How did they know that we were here? When they have fights on set that could be perceived as lover spats, even though they're not, there's always cameras there. Like, how is that happening? So there's a little element of a mystery of like trying to figure out who's leaking this information that turns out to be less and less of a lie as the book goes. Like when it starts, they're not together. They're not interested in being together. And these rumors are just rumors, but they get closer and closer and closer to each other as the book moves on. And they start to be less and less and less untrue rumors because like now they really do have feelings for each other. And now these pictures that are being taken of them dropping each other off at their apartments and maybe standing real close to each other and snuggling a little bit outside of the door (laughs) are not so much lies as like that's a real snuggle. Like maybe that snuggle happened. Like what do we do with this? I don't know. And there's the age question and there's the power dynamic of like boss employee. Lots of stuff going on. Lots of stuff going on. And um, like I said, you know, it's not super steamy. Like there, there is sex, but it's not erotica by any stretch of the imagination. It's pretty late in the book. And I think it's only one sex scene. So I think that it will be like cozy and cute and lighthearted enough to hit all those points you're asking for. So that's something to talk about by Meryl Wilsner. We did try to find you a cozy lesbian mystery and did not come up with anything yeah. good enough to recommend in the short time span that we had to work on this. So if anybody is listening and has some recs, please do leave those in the feedback because I would like to read those. My pick for you is another graphic novel. It's Bingo Love by T. Franklin, Jen St. Ong, and Joy San. And this is such a lovely and sweet story. And I have read My Real Children and know exactly what you're talking about here. And I think this will scratch a lot of the same itch. This is about two women who are African-American. They meet at church bingo in 1963. Hazel and Mary. Oh, they're so good. And then when they're like, (laughs) I think they're teenagers, they're young. But It's 1963, and they are definitely not allowed to have a relationship. Like, that is not gonna happen. They're forced apart by their families and the expectations of society. So they both get married and have families with men. And then decades later, they are in their 60s and they meet again at bingo. Oh my God, I can't handle it. It's too cute. And they like figure out they still have this chemistry. They're both at places in their lives where they're like, I'm gonna do what I want. Like I bowed to pressure when I was younger because that was what happened to me. Like I didn't really feel like I had a choice, but now I'm going to do what I want. And so they get back together and it's so lovely. And there, it's interesting, you know, because it gets into some of the societal and cultural expectations surrounding them. So it's not like devoid of context that is on the heavier side. And some of their family responses are real interesting, like family meeting, grandma's got a girlfriend, like how's that going to go down? But it's, I think it's handled really nicely and it does just leave you with this the heartwarmingest, coziest feeling. And yeah, I, I think it's definitely gonna gonna be in the wheelhouse that you're looking for. So again, that's Bingo Love by T. Franklin, Jen St. Ong, and Joy San. All right. Our next question is from Jessica, who says, I love stories about amazing people, especially women or LGBTQ people that are doing amazing things and changing the world. I try to read biographies or memoirs, but I always get bored. I love page-turning fiction books of all genres. Can you recommend any nonfiction books about people doing amazing things that reads like fiction? Okay, 
I picked Naturally Tan by Yay! Tan France, which has the best title. I love that title so much. <laughs> um, which is a memoir, but I I don't know that it reads like fiction. I don't know what I would that I would say that, but it's very fast paced. And if you listen to it on audio, his narration, of course, because it's his own book about himself, his narration is really funny, and you can see in his like you could see his face, you know, talking with all the expressions that Tan makes. He has a very expressive face. And it's, I think it makes it go a little faster because you feel like he's there with you. And this book does come with trigger warnings for racism, homophobia, and suicidal thoughts. So the memoir, I, I should probably tell you who Tan France is. If you are unfamiliar, <laughs> Tan France is one of the stars of the reboot of Queer Eye, which is on Netflix. Please go watch it. Like It's just so, especially right now, just the most like soothing, heartwarming I don't know. Soothing is just, I feel like it's a balm mm -hmm. to my soul <laughs> every time I watch that show. And he is the fashion person in the Queer Eye cast. Like he helps make over people clothes-wise. So his story is so fascinating. And the reason why I picked it, so he's British. He's from obviously the UK. He's British. Mm -hmm. And grew up in a very traditional Muslim family. And so he's talking a lot about what that's like to grow up gay in a traditional Muslim family. And also to grow up as one of the very few people of color living in the town that he grew up with in England. I think it's called Doncaster, Doncaster or something like that. So there's a lot of like, oh, really painful moments in those stories. And then he comes to the US and gets into like fashion and design and all of that. And he ends up marrying like a Mormon cowboy. And now he lives <laughs> in Salt Lake City and is a just got his citizenship last week, which is awesome. You should follow him on Instagram. He's a great follow. But the things that he's done, the I think the one that was like the most mind blowing to me was that, you know, the vintage um, bathing suit trend with like the high waisted, very like Marilyn Monroe looking kind of thing. And it's not just bathing suits. It's all kinds of um, fashion like that 50s look really blew up uh, in the early 2000s. It was almost entirely because of Tan France, which I just boggles my mind. And it's because he started a bathing suit line, a vintage bathing suit light that was designed to target Mormon women who were looking for quote unquote modest swimwear. So like that very like, you know, wiggly kind of one piece, again, Marilyn Monroe kind of situation that so many people were wearing in the early 2000s, including myself, <laughs> comes out of like a gay Muslim Brit making bathing suits for Mormon ladies who don't want to show their midriffs. That is just mind boggling to me. And then it turned into this multi-billion dollar thing and like mod cloth is tan France, all of that kind of stuff. Even if you're not interested in fashion and don't particularly think like that's an amazing thing to have done, which it is. But even if you don't think that, his run on Queer Eye, like I, the internet has a lot of opinions about how effective or not effective Queer Eye is at like changing hearts and minds. I think it's great. Whatever. Like, I don't know. I'm glad that they rebooted it. I think it's an important show right now, especially in our like current political climate. Mm. And so his presence on that show I think is really amazing and important, especially his his ability to speak to specific like they call them heroes. Isn't that what they're called? Yeah. Like, not main characters, but the heroes on the show who come from South Asian backgrounds. He can speak to their experiences and the pressures that they feel from their families and their communities. And it's just so useful. And I think it's amazing. So that's Naturally Tan by Tan France. So good. Love it. Love it. I picked How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi, which is a it's an essay collection and it comes with a trigger warning for child abuse because he experienced a very upsetting thing as a kid that then shaped his life for a long time. And I picked this because, first of all, Alexander Chi is an amazing writer. And second of all, it covers a lot of interesting 
things, intersections like history, culture, politics, as well as, you know, gardening. There's an amazing essay on roses. He covers what it's like to be a writer, what it's like to be a writer of color. He covers, you know, international travel, dating, like he covers so much ground and he's an incredibly in-depth narrator. So, you know, he's digging into the AIDS crisis. He's digging into like you know, he's a cater waiter for William F. Buckley. So like what that was like, <laughs> he talks about 9-11, like he talks about, you know, his parents and how they came to this country. And he just talks about so many different and important moments in American contemporary life that I feel like you do learn things as if you were reading like something that was more, you know, oriented around like a history or like pop journalism or whatever. He gives that feeling, but it's also so deeply rooted in his own personal experience. And I think it just it is a page turner. He's an incredibly compelling writer. And I think it would give you maybe some interesting jumping off points to like of topics maybe that you might want to read more on in from other folks. And I think also because you said, you know, you always get bored with memoirs. What I love about this is it is a collection of memoir essays. So each is very self-contained and short, although they do all come together to form a larger narrative. So, like, you can put it up and pick it down and you're fine. Like, read an essay at a time. Leave it alone for a little while. Come back to it. Like, you're going to be 100% fine. You're not going to lose the thread. So this might help you finish the book um, because it's it's speaking to you both in terms of the page-turning writing and then giving you little capsules of information so you don't get too bogged down. And again, Alexander Chi, just an amazing writer. And I do think his presence in literature has changed things in important ways. And I think his work continues to change the scope of literature. So again, that's How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi. And our last question is from Bianca, who says, Hello, I am suffering from major character hangover and need some help. I just, this is like, I love an opening. I love an opening. It's a great opening. Uh, Okay, Bianca says, I recently flew through the Raven Cycle trilogy. Ha ha, puns. (laughs) Um, That's by Maggie Stiefbatter. And couldn't get over it. Since then, I've tumbled into YA books with cliche brooding anti-heroes who secretly have a soft spot, as in Ronan Lynch, Kaz Brecker, etc. And I can't get enough of the overdone trope. Are there any other books you can recommend in a series or standalone where there is a character who hates everyone and everything until they find someone slash something they don't? I'm a huge fan of YA, fantasy, or contemporary and don't mind how cheesy or cliche the books are. I just think this will be the easiest way to get out of this bizarre funk. Bonus points for LGBTQ and POC rep. (laughs) What an interesting conundrum. (laughs) Amanda, what did you pick? I love this question as a person who is an anti-hero who hates everything, (laughs) (laughs) but who secretly has a lot of soft spots. Okay, so I picked Bonds of Brass by Emily Skrutsky, which is the first book in the Bloodrite trilogy. And it is, I know, having heard on the internet, Star Wars fan fiction, kind of, like thinly veiled Star Wars fan fiction. But I have not seen the movies that it's supposed to be based on because it's some of the newer ones. So I'm not I'm not sure how true to it or like if you have a Star Wars itch, you need scratched how satisfying this would be. But the internet seems to be satisfied by it. So I just want to toss that out there in case you have really strong feelings about Star Wars. I don't know. So this is about a young pilot. His name is Etienne. And he is at the Umber Empire Military Academy. And his roommate is Gal, his best friend. They've been roommates for like years. And they're both, you know, at this military academy training to be pilots. And Etienne himself was 
a young child when his planet was invaded by the Umber Empire. And so the Umber Empire killed his parents, left him an orphan. His early years until he joined the Academy were very, very difficult. And he has a lot of you know feelings about the Umber Empire. And he has decided to join the Umber Military Academy as a way to pick up the pieces of his life and move on. Like his home world is not coming back. He needs to figure out how to make a life for himself under this empire that he, you know, is just here. Like, it just is what it is. And so he's trying to make the best of it. And then when the book opens, like a big group of his classmates try to assassinate Gal, his roommate and best friend, and he saves him. Etienne saves him and they go on the run and he cannot figure out what the issue is. Like, why do they hate you so much? Like, what is going on? And it turns out, it's this is not a spoiler, it's revealed very early, that Gal is the, the heir to the Umber Empire. And he has been hiding at this military academy for his entire childhood for reasons of like, you know, his parents don't want him to be assassinated. Um, And also the like cultural structure of their royal system is like when the kid turns 18, they show up at the palace to like claim their throne. It's all kind of weird and complicated. So anyway, he's been hiding. And what is is Etienne supposed to do with this information? Like he loves Gal and that love is not just friendly and their romance is a big plot line, very slow burning plot line throughout the book. But this is the heir to an empire that destroyed my society and destroyed my family. So he's got this choice. Like he can escort Gal back to his home world, to the center of the Umber Empire and hope what he knows to be true will come to pass, which is that Gal will be a just ruler and improve the empire and make sure nothing like what happened to Etienne ever happens again. Or he can betray him, join a revolution and overthrow the empire entirely. And so the anti-hero here, I think, is really Gal. Like, Gal is very brooding. <laughs> He's got a lot of secrets, obviously. And he, I don't, he doesn't hate everyone and everything, but he feels the pressure of being an heir to a really violent and destructive empire and the pressure of needing to fix that and, like, right all those wrongs so much that he is a little bit insufferable. Like, there were points when I'm reading this where I'm like, why do you love this boy so much? He's so annoying. Like, he cannot get his head out of his own butt. Like, oh my god, stop it. But, you know, it's understandable. <laughs> like, the weight of the literal world is on this boy's shoulders. And he wants to trust his best friend Etienne, but like, can you? Because he might betray me and he wouldn't be wrong because my parents did murder his parents. And like, it's all very weird. I don't know. So there's a lot of feelings, just very angsty anti-hero. And as the reader, you are left with the question yourself of like, do I root for this kid who is going to inherit like a colonial superpower? That's weird. I don't know if I want him to win. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It's There's a lot of ethical dilemmas for you as a reader. So that's Bonds of Brass by Emily Skrutsky. I did some brainstorming around this question with the contributors and other staff, and we landed on In Other Lands by Sarah Reese Brennan. Um, Sharifa, who is my co-host on SFF, yeah, in particular, boosted this one. And it's been on my list for forever, so I thought now would be a good time to bump it up to the top of my TBR and maybe to the top of yours. It is about a young boy named, well, Elliot, he's 13. Elliot is 13. He lives in sort of the, you know, quote unquote, real world. And one day on a class trip, they go on a field trip and he can see a wall that no one else can see. It's the wall to the borderlands, which is where like magic and elves and harpies and mermaids and fairies, etc. all live. And because he can see the wall, he is given the chance to go to school in the borderlands. And he jumps at this chance. He is not well liked and he doesn't like anyone else. Descriptions <laughs> of this character give me deep like David Rose vibes for the record. Yes. <laughs> so like 13 year old yes. David Rose goes to fairyland. <laughs> like that is my, that is the vibe I get from this book. 
And so, yeah, so Elliot, you know, goes to school now in this magical land where he suddenly has to learn about, like, weapons and fitness training and nobody's going to take him to see the mermaids and, like, oh, what's going to happen? Um, and ends up befriending an elven warrior who's, like, she's the most beautiful being that he's ever seen and her human friend Luke who is very sunny and blonde and annoyingly likable and Elliot doesn't like anybody and nobody likes Elliot but maybe Luke does Ooh, what's gonna happen etc 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 you get the idea so yeah and it's real fun to see reviews of this book because some people are just like Ugh, cannot stand Elliot and then you have the anti-hero camp which is like Elliot my like crunchy grumpy hero baby like love <laughs> so... <laughs> crunchy grumpy hero baby that's you know that's the vibe I love it so um and yeah people have been raving about this book to me for years I'm waiting on my library hold waiting on all of the digital library holds forever is like the story of my life yes but I think you will dig it. Uh, so again, that's In Other Lands by Sarah Reese Brennan. And that is our show. Wahoo! Yay! Thank you all for listening and sending in amazing questions as always. If you are so inclined, you could leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. In particular, it helps other people to find the show. And we do love to see the feedback. Thanks to our sponsors for making the show possible. In between shows, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. You can also find me mostly on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. That is spelled I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.